So I want to invite you, if you would, uh, if you're able, uh, would you just stand, and we're going to read, uh, just stand out of kind of uh, honor and recognition of God's word, uh, and then I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in. So this is Genesis chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the woman, he made into a woman, uh, taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word for us this morning. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, as we open up your word, uh, as we seek to understand your truth, um, God, would that promise be true that uh, your word is alive and active, that your spirit works through these words to challenge us, to convict us, to conform us to Jesus? Uh, God, I pray for the one who's here this morning and, uh, and there's some hardness that they feel, uh, maybe to your scriptures, maybe to your spirit, maybe even just the church in general. Uh, God, would the, the message that we talk through just bring clarity that leads to conviction, that leads to the comfort of the cross, comfort of Jesus. Uh, so God, I know as we talk about some of these things, there's going to be a lot of uh, weight, maybe some burden, maybe some, even some tendency to feel some shame or some guilt. Uh, Spirit, would you just cover all of this in the grace of Jesus, uh, that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus, uh, and so we seek to know truth so that we can know you. Uh, and so would you just guide my words, guide our reflection on the scriptures this morning. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, uh, I don't know what your experience with the Bible is. Uh, chances are you have some interaction with it. Uh, but if you open up the Bible for any period of time, uh, you're going to encounter some things that are a little confusing. Uh, there are some things that are confusing uh, because the Bible is maybe a little bit less clear than we would like. Uh, things like, how does prayer work? Right? Like, when I pray, does God get it right away? Right? Does he get a notification on his divine phone? Uh, how does he decide like, how to answer it and when to answer it? It's not really clear in Scripture. We know that God answers prayer, but it's not really clear how that happens all the time. Uh, also, like, how does God's will and my will interact? Right? It's not super clear. We know that God is sovereign and that God orchestrates events and that he's in charge of things. And yet there's also, uh, in, in the stories of the scriptures, people who take action. And how do those, things to, how do those two things relate? The, the scriptures are clear that we both have responsibility and God is sovereign, and yet it's not clear how those two things relate. Uh, it's also not clear, like, why does God allow hard things to happen? It's not always super clear in the scriptures. Uh, what is clear is that God works in our circumstances, that he is good no matter what our circumstances are, but oftentimes in the middle of it, it can be really confusing. So there are some things in the Bible that are confusing because the Bible is unclear. But there are another set of things that are confusing, not because the Bible is unclear, but because we have some confusion about them in ourselves. Right? That things are confusing, not because the Bible doesn't lay out some things clearly, but because our life is confusing. The decisions that we have to make, the 
the choices that we make, the relationships that we have, the messages that we receive, those all kind of muddy the waters and make things a little bit unclear. Uh, and when that happens, one of the things that we have to do is really do some work to understand what God is saying. In fact, it is in those moments in particular when life feels really confusing uh, that we need to come back to the Bible and say, okay, what has God said? Uh, and how do I make sense of that? Recognizing the fact that there's probably some of the confusion is because I don't want God to have said something about this. Right? Sometimes part of my confusion with scriptures, part of my confusion with reading the Bible, is not so much that it's unclear, it's that I don't like what it says, and so I try to find other things around it. And that just muddies the waters. Uh, and today in particular, what we're going to talk about is one of those things that isn't unclear because the Bible is unclear, but because we have a lot of confusion in and around ourselves. Uh, and that is the topic of marriage. Uh, and marriage is really confusing and difficult to talk about for a whole host of reasons, one of which is because there are a lot of people telling you what to think about marriage. The most significant one is your family of origin. Uh, that the marriage that you saw your parents have or not have, uh, the way that your family growing up talked about marriage or thought about marriage, the messages that you received from your parents about uh, who your ideal spouse should be or if you should marry at all, uh, has deeply affected how you view, about, how you view marriage. Uh, it shaped your attitudes about it, whether you are interested in it or open to it or resistant to it. Uh, that is one of the fundamental authorities that is teaching you something about marriage. Uh, the other is your past experiences. I know some folks in this room, like, you've gone through a really painful divorce. And so there's probably some, some pain or some struggle that you feel about this topic of marriage. Uh, some of you have uh, buried spouses and gone through the grief of that experience. And so marriage becomes really hard to talk about. Uh, there's some of us who uh, long for marriage and yet can't seem to find it. In fact, uh, as much as our opinions about marriage are changing, people still overwhelmingly expect to marry at some point in their life, something like 70% in one survey that I looked at this past week. Uh, and then there are the kind of the messages around us, like every rom-com ends with the implication of marriage, right? They don't actually show the marriage typically, it ends with a kiss, uh, but it's kind of the assumption that that kiss, like everything is okay now. All the conflict is over, all the drama is over, we've kissed, and therefore things are going to be okay. And everyone who's married knows that there's a lot that happens after the kiss. And there's a lot of arguments, there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of tension that you have to work through. Most of the struggle with marriage is not leading up to marriage, but after marriage. And so most of our messages that we receive are like, well, if you just find that one, if you find that Prince Charming, right, it will finally be okay. And then you get into marriage and you're like, I thought this was Prince Charming, uh, and he is something else. He's, you've got other names for him, right? Uh, the other kind of reason why this is confusing is because our culture's assumptions or thoughts about marriage are radically shifting right now. Right? There is a lot of change in the air and change in our culture and how our culture views marriage. In fact, in the mid-90s, it was a Democratic president who passed the Defense of Marriage Amendment. Right? They kind of codified marriage as between one man and one woman. Uh, and yet today, like even those on conservative sides are kind of changing their views on that. And so it's a really interesting time and really kind of confusing time to talk about what is marriage? And what does it look like to do this thing in God's way? Uh, and so where I want to begin this morning is actually not in Genesis chapter 2, but in Mark chapter 10. Uh, so you have your Bible. Mark uh, is kind of three quarters of the way through the Bible in Mark chapter 10. Uh, and I want to start here because I think there's this kind of 
prevailing idea that somehow as we work through the Bible, uh, the view of marriage changes. Uh, that somehow we begin kind of in kind of the Stone Age, and we sort of move into a progressive kind of way where eventually like the views on marriage change. Uh, and I want to start here because Jesus had some very clear things to say about marriage uh, in Mark chapter 10. In the context, religious experts are coming to Jesus, and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus goes back and forth with them on the law of Moses. In other words, uh, Exodus and Leviticus. What did God say in the law? Uh, But then he says this in verse 5. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He's directly quoting from Genesis chapter 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus holds to Genesis 2 as having kind of an authoritative template of what marriage in God's world, in God's view, looks like. And so if we're going to be, if you're interested in Jesus, if you're open to following the way of Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and died for your sins, then Part of what we have to consider is that Jesus holds this view of marriage as authoritative. Uh, That he views Genesis 2 as having something to say to the contemporary questions that they were asking, and also ours as well. And I think it's interesting because the Pharisees in that context are asking, what's the exception? And that's going to be what we're going to do. Like, as we we talk through marriage, you're going to have lots of questions like, well, what about this? What about this scenario? And I think Jesus, rather than kind of getting into a question of what if... He first goes to what is. What is God's design? What is God's template? We have to first get there to then say, okay, if that's God's design and template, then what do we do with the what-if questions that I have? And so uh, we're going to turn back to Genesis chapter 2 now, uh, and we're going to kind of just work through this text uh, together for a little bit to just see, okay, if this is God's template, if this is God's design for life, uh, then how should we think about marriage? Uh, Genesis 2, verse 18, just context. Remember, God is the author of life. He gave life to this first man. Uh, He then plants a garden and invites the man to work alongside him to fill the earth with Eden. And in verses 15 through 17 is where we get to the introduction of the two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Uh, And right after that is where we find ourselves in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. This is the first time in the whole story so far, Genesis 1 included, that something is not good. Up until now, everything has been good. Good bananas, good monkeys, good giraffes, good waves. Like, everything has been good, except for this. And this is before Genesis 3, when sin and brokenness creep in, which means that God has intentionally wired you to need other people. That is woven into the fabric of how God has designed you. He didn't create you to be an isolated hermit living on the side of a mountain. He didn't create you to just languish in loneliness. He created you to need other people. In fact, the U.S. Surgeon General recently released a report uh, describing what he called a loneliness epidemic. That 50% of U.S. adults feel some measurable chronic loneliness. That they feel like there's not someone who's there for me. And so I just think before we get into marriage, like when we talk about community and what it means to be a church, part of the way that we can be good news 
is by being a community that deeply cares for people. Right? That when people come in from whatever their week is, the chances are 50% chance that they experience loneliness this week. A 50% chance that you experience loneliness this week. And so when we come in, or when we gather together as a church, like part of our life together, a significant part of our, our ministry and mission to this community is to be a community where you come in and you are welcomed, where you are loved, where you're cared for. Like if you're going through something, we'll sit next to you. If you're struggling, we'll, we'll, we'll pray with you. Like that is God's design. And so the church is kind of God's intentional answer to this deep longing that we have for loneliness. Right, so let that be an encouragement. Like God knows your loneliness if you're feeling that. And he has created spaces for you to know community in this very room. But the first thing I want you to see about marriage in particular uh, is in verse 18. It's not good that man will be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So first and foremost, marriage is God's idea. Adam wasn't like, God, you know what would be great? And like describing his ideal mate. He, God didn't give him an e-harmony profile to figure out. He, God is the one. First, God is the one who recognizes his loneliness. And then God is the one who designs a solution for his need. So marriage begins with God. And this is why this is really important. Because I would, I would venture to guess that 50% of our current conflict over the definition of marriage have more to do with this than anything else. Because there is a, a, a civic and kind of political definition of marriage, right? which is that there's certain rights and benefits and tax breaks and all those kinds of things that have to do with marriage. Like when I perform a wedding, I have to sign a document and send it to uh, someone in the Ohio State government. Right? And that is what authorizes that marriage. But in, in a Christian worldview, which I mean is like viewing the world through how God created the world, Marriage doesn't begin with a state or with a people defining what marriage is. It begins with God and his idea. Right? Which means that God's design and intent for marriage is, has a deeper authority and a deeper meaning. Right? Where the state is going to have obligations about rights and responsibilities and equal, all those kinds of things, right? God's design is different. It's not based on a document that people have agreed upon. It's based on how he created the world. And so it has this deep connection to the order of the universe. And I just think that's important because it, uh, it's very easy right now to kind of stumble into conversations and even debates about this. But I think we have to recognize that if you're not beginning from the Bible, or you're not beginning from a Christian worldview, you're beginning from a very different place. A place that says that God doesn't exist. Or if he does exist, we don't really know what he wants or what he needs, or maybe he didn't design. And so that's a whole other set of questions than if you are viewing the world through a Christian worldview that says God did create, he did design, and so marriage is a reflection of his order. And so I just want to put that out there for you. Like if you, you're like, oh great, I'm in church and they're talking about marriage, here it comes, right? that we begin this conversation with an understanding that God exists, that God acts, and that God has a will, and he has announced that will through his word. And any kind of other approach to marriage that doesn't begin there is just talking about a completely different thing. So everything that we're going to talk about from here on out is a, what I would call a Christian view of marriage. There are other views of marriage that you will find in your neighborhood, but this is a Christian view of marriage that begins with God's idea. 
The second thing I want you to see is why marriage matters. Why marriage matters in God's design. I think there's three ways in which marriage is designed to reflect God. And so marriage is not just like a a convenience. It's not just I fell head over heels with this guy and he's dreamy. Marriage has an intent, and that intent is to reflect the God who created. So just three ways in which marriage reflects God. First, marriage reflects God's companionship. Marriage reflects God's companionship. Uh, In verse 18, it says, I will make for him a helper. Uh, Now, the the word here for helper is a very controversial word. You can find thousands of books written about how to mean it. But at its fundamental meaning, it means a partner. Uh, It means a support. And this word is more often used to describe God in the Old Testament than anything else. Which means that this idea of a helper is not like an assistant or an intern or someone that I just give all the work that I don't want to do. This is a co-collaborator and co-conspirator in the work that we're called to do. Right? And so it cannot mean that this creation is less than because it is used to describe God himself and his role and his work in helping his people accomplish his mission. Right? And so marriage, first and foremost, uh, reflects God's companionship, that God is there for you no matter what situation you find yourself. He is a covenant God who promises to be there for him. And so marriage is intended to be a reflection of God's desire to be a companion to you, to be for you, to be with you, and to be supporting you as you seek to accomplish his will. Marriage is first and foremost a reflection of his companionship. You know, it's interesting in our our increasingly individualistic world that is so much about me that we're also at the same time feeling such deep loneliness. I wonder if those things are not two sides of the same coin. That God created you to need companionship. And he says, I'm here for you. And let me also give you a community around you. Let me give you a partner. So first, marriage reflects God's companionship. Second, marriage reflects God's communal nature. Marriage reflects God's communal nature. Uh, Let's look at this. Uh, This word, fit for him. Uh, there's a, that, that, that phrase is doing a lot of work. Right? That, that idea that this helper is fit for him. Uh, one of the study Bibles that I use is, uh, describes it this way. This Hebrew expression, fit for, literally means according to the opposite of him. According to the opposite of him. Translations such as suitable for, matching, corresponding to, all capture the idea. Translations that render the phrase simply partner, while not totally inaccurate, do not reflect the nuance of correspondence. Now, what that is saying is that the word that is used here in this language has an intentional uh, idea that this was not just a copy-paste job. God did not just copy the man and create a duplicate of him so that those two guys could just bro out in the garden, right? That's not the idea behind this. The idea behind this is that this partner that is made for him, this correspondence that is made for him, is like him, and yet also opposite him, meeting him in his need, meeting him even biologically as his opposite. That's written into the definition of this partner. And I think this gets to, uh, if you look back one chapter in Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 27, uh, it says this, uh, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, one of the, I would say, the bedrock foundational thing that Christians historically have believed is that God is three in one. That he is what what theologians call trinity. Uh, That God is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, That this is the God who creates everything. This is the God who is able to say, I'll be your companion. Why? Because this God has no companionship for all eternity past. He has known relationship for all eternity past. Is that his very nature is to be love? How can that be? Because he has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this clearly in the life of Jesus when he is baptized in uh, the Gospels. The voice of God the Father speaks a blessing over him as Jesus is being baptized at the same time that the Holy Spirit is descending upon him. There is a, a unity in diversity within the very character of who God is. And if you start changing that, if you start tampering that, you're no longer talking about historic Christianity. You're talking about something else. You've deviated from what Christians have believed since the very earliest days of following Jesus. Now, here's why this matters. Because when God creates marriage, he intends for it to reflect that nature. To reflect the nature of of three-in-oneness in in two-in-oneness in male and female coming together in this covenant of marriage. This is part of how God has built us and designed us to reflect something of who God is. I think this is why, uh, you know, there's this weird, like, two whole sentences on, on Adam and the animals, right? Like, why? It's great, I get it. Like, he spent time with lots of animals. I want to know more about what it means to be made in the image of God. Why give me two sentences on Adam's first biology lesson. Why? And I think what the writer wants to show you is that God could have created an infinite number of possibilities of creation. There's no end to God's creativity. There's no end to what he could create. He can make a zebra. He can make a giraffe. He can make an octopus. He can make a snail. He can make endless number of things. And what is it that he chooses to create? A woman an intentionally designed woman to be compatible with this man that he's created. There's, a, there, there's a, a focus that comes in in verse 21 that God causes this man to fall into his sleep. And when he sleeps, God takes from his side and he fashions. Same word that is used for how he, how he forms man earlier. He fashions this woman to be compatible with him. Like, this is just a a radical, like, reorientation, redefining of the value of women, right? That you are not an accident, you are not a derivative of the man. You have value and worth and dignity as someone made in the image of God. And this is part of God's good design, right? If you're a man, that's good. If you're a woman, that's good. That's part of God's good design. And I think the reason why this is so hard for us to talk about is because there are two very strong narratives in our world right now that make this super confusing. Uh, both of them believe that sex and gender are ultimate from opposite perspectives. Right? So there's, there's one kind of narrative that says that gender is the defining value of who you are, right? typically in traditional and conservative spaces. Right? It says that uh, if you're a man, then that means you do these manly things. 
If you're a woman, that means you do these womanly things. And so if you're a man, part of your gender role is to be strong, to be unemotional, to be tough, right? to be a provider, don't cry. Like There's a whole script about that, that you need to be kind of that strong person in your family. Uh, and then complementary with that script is that if you're a woman, you need to be a nurturer, yeah. you need to be out, stay at home, you need to care, you need to be, be emotional. And, and notice, just like at no point in this text are any of those things included in that. And, and part of why that narrative is really, I think, difficult is because if you don't fit one of those two paradigms, of those gender scripts, that you can start to feel like, is there something wrong with me? And then you maybe feel some shame. There's some social shame that you might feel about that because I don't feel like I fit like this box or that box as far as the gender script that I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to follow. Right. And I think that the reality is that that kind of treats sex and gender as too much, as this kind of defining mark of your value and your worth. But on the flip side, the other narrative that is loud in our world is that gender is, doesn't matter. Right? That is nothing. That it's just kind of there, and it's there to kind of restrain you or restrict you. It's there to kind of keep you in a box. And so what you need to do is find your true self and then reflect that however you want to. Now, here's the thing. I think part of that is actually tapping on something that's true, and that is that sex is a profoundly powerful and intimate thing. And so if I'm going to look for something outside of God that is the ultimate thing, that's going to be something that I'm going to consider. Why? Because it's so powerful. It's so intimate, it's so personal, it must be my true self. But I want you to see that neither of those scripts that says that gender is kind of the defining of who you are or that gender is nothing, neither of those are the actual kind of picture of gender that we get here in Genesis 1. The first thing that we see in Genesis 1 as it relates to gender is that you are an image bearer of God. First and foremost, that your ultimate identity and value and worth is found not in anything that you do or anything that you feel, but in God and his value that he has placed on you. Right? That you are an image bearer first and foremost, and you have dignity and worth and value because God has stamped you with his stamp before anything else happens in your life, before you feel anything about yourself. You have worth, value, and dignity. Like the whole kind of train that says that uh, human rights are ultimate, right? that humans have value and dignity, that is a fundamentally Christian idea. You won't find that anywhere else. It begins here in Genesis 1. And in order to believe in human rights, we have to believe that there is an ultimate reality, that there is a God who has stamped each and every person with value. And so I want you to know like this morning, if you feel like you don't fit in kind of this, this idea of marriage or gender or sexuality, you have worth. But that worth doesn't come from you. It comes from what God has said about you. And so I think one of the important things to get is, is none of us can know who we really are until we know the God that we were made for. None of us can know who we are until we can know the God that we were made for. Why? Because I am made to reflect God. And so if I'm resistant to God, if I'm close to God, if I don't want anything to do with God, I'm like a mirror that has nothing to reflect. I'm looking for something. I'm looking for something to give me worth or significance. You cannot know who you are until you find who God is. I think for those of us, right, who, like, struggle with this idea of how do I talk about this, right? How do I talk about views of marriage and sexuality? I think we have to recognize that that's first and foremost what people need. 
First and foremost, people need to discover the God of the Bible. They need to know Jesus and his love for them, his death for their sins for them. That's where we begin. Because it's only in knowing this God that you will find anything else about you. And so first and foremost, your value is not based on how you feel or who, who you think you are. It is based on God. And he gives you value. And part of that value is wrapped up in your body. I think one of the things that we have to get is that Christianity is a radically pro-body kind of thing. Jesus took on a body, fully and completely bodied, fully and completely man. And yet Jesus himself, he wasn't married, which means he didn't experience sexual activity. And yet how many of us would look at Jesus and say, you know, he didn't live a very good life. No, he found his worth and his value in his relationship with God the Father. And he becomes the picture for how we think about sex and gender, not as ultimate realities that will give me something that I need or keep me happy or give me significance, but as something that God has given me to steward, to take care of. So marriage reflects God's communal nature. Lastly, marriage reflects God's creative ability. God is able to create. He creates life. And so within marriage, God then gives the ability to create life through sexual union leading to children. That's in verse 28, part of God's plan for marriage, is that it would in fact create children. Now that's not the only reason for marriage, but that is an important part of of, of marriage, is that marriage creates the space in which children can thrive and flourish, where they can grow up seeing the image of God displayed in the relationship with their parents. That is part of God's plan. And so why would he initiate a covenant to protect it? Because it is in creating life that we reflect something of who God is in a deeply profound and personal kind of way. So marriage reflects God's ability to be creative. Now, uh, how do we think about that then? Second thing I I just want to talk about is that marriage is intended to be a permanent but not ultimate oneness. It's a permanent but not ultimate oneness. Oneness. It's designed to be permanent in the sense that as long as you live your life, when you are covenanted to someone, the language of Genesis 24 tells us uh, that you leave and you join. I like the King James, which says cleave, right? Leave and cleave. It rhymes and it also is just like a, it's a powerful word, right? And so it's designed to be, I am choosing to covenant with you. A covenant is not a promise. It's not nice words. A covenant is a binding agreement where there's some things that in this agreement I leave behind, and there's some things that in this agreement I join. God is, throughout the Bible, a covenant maker. He always says a covenant comes with a blessing and also a warning. And that is what he's doing in this marriage, is that uh, he's creating this marriage covenant that is intended to give the space for oneness to happen. That oneness is not like the day you say I do, all of a sudden you're one. That oneness is a journey of moving closer towards one another throughout the years of your life, which means that it's going to be bumpy, you're going to change along the way, you're going to encounter challenges, you might have kids in the picture, you're going to lose your job, you're going to move, there's all sorts of things that are going to happen, and yet the covenant of your marriage is intended to be a permanent foundation in which the two of you can move towards oneness with each other and ultimately oneness with God. And I say not ultimate because Jesus said in the next kingdom, we're not going to be married. And so this permanence is intended to be a a way in which you and I are sanctified, you and I are made more like Jesus, 
Uh, like, like, when you get married, you and your spouse maybe look a little bit like Jesus, but you look a whole lot not like Jesus. And so then you come in together, and you're like, okay, we have to do this thing, and it's bumpy, right? And you're, you're kind of rubbing, rubbing each other's edges, right? And it, and it gets hard. That's part of the point, is that marriage is intended to move us towards Jesus. I want to just show you five aspects of oneness. We're going to go through this quick. So if you're like, how long is this sermon? Five aspects of oneness uh, that we can see in God's design. First, spiritual oneness. Spiritual oneness. Uh, the man has time with God by himself. But what we often miss is verse 22, the woman has time with God as well. Adam is snoozing. He's probably drooling. He probably looks real gnarly. Uh, and it says that the Lord God took this rib, he made a woman, and brought her to the man. Which means there is some point in time where Adam is sleeping and God has given life to this woman and he is introducing her to the world. He is saying, hey, I gave you life. Right? He said, let me tell you about this good design. And so there's a spiritual oneness to marriage. In fact, this is the foundation of marriage. Right? If you are like, interested in someone, or you're pursuing someone, or you're open to someone, and you say, hey, let's spend some time together. But you're not on the same page about who God is. Like, you are starting from two radically different places that you will never experience oneness like God intends because you, you're just not even on the same spiritual universe. And so first and foremost, if you're thinking about marriage, like, are you on the same page about God and what he has said? Because if you're not, you're just, it's not going to go well. So there's a spiritual oneness that has to be fostered in your marriage. Second, social oneness. Social oneness. Uh, this guy is alone, and yes, maybe he found some connection with a dog or a cat or a tiger. I don't know. They would have all maybe been a little bit domestic at that point, right? But, but he found some connection, but it wasn't enough. Right? There is a social connection or social oneness that marriage is intended to thrive and flourish. Now, that doesn't mean you have to always hang out with the same people. You have to always kind of be together, but that you should have some things in common. In fact, that's probably what drew you to each other in the first place. Someone being like, hey, you know what? I know someone. Or you had some common interests, right? So is there some degree in which you enjoy time together? Doing whatever it is that you do. Board games, Lord of the Rings movie marathon, hiking, right? Some space in which you are spending time with your spouse, just enjoying each other's company. A social oneness. Third, there's an emotional oneness. Adam says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There is a, a deep knowing, like a, a literal, like even like Adam is saying, hey, your soul and my soul are connected. I know what's going on inside of you. Right? And, and I want to share what's going on inside of me. And, and that looks different for a lot of people, but there has to be a kind of an emotional intimacy, a knowing of what's going on inside of each other that is fundamental to part of what it means to be married. In fact, I think that's part of this idea of being naked and unashamed is I can be honest with you because our marriage covenant allows me to do that. It allows me to be open and honest. Uh, I'm going to throw a bonus one in there. I think with emotional oneness comes financial oneness. Right? Uh, and I say this because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, which means that if you have your bank account and she has her bank account, Jesus is saying your hearts are going to move in opposite directions, right? And, and like how you arrange that, whatever, is fine. But I think there's, there's this tendency to feel like I need to protect this from you. And I think part of emotional oneness is financial oneness. To say we're joining our life together, which means we're also joining our financial stress together. 
and we're going to work through this together. And so that, I think that's a fundamental part of emotional oneness. Fourth, covenantal oneness. Covenantal oneness. This is where I'm choosing to leave everything else, all the other options off the table, and I am choosing to join and covenant myself to you for life. And this is the part that, largely speaking, particularly if you're a millennial like me or younger, you don't want this part. Because it feels like being tied down. Uh, you're afraid of getting hurt. You're afraid of, I don't know, whatever could happen. But the covenant is designed to protect you. It's designed to give you the space in which, okay, I know that you have committed wholeheartedly to love me and to be with me and to be for me. And that means even when you don't like me, and even when I don't like you, we are in covenant together, and so we can talk about it. Why? Because our relationship is not built on you and me feeling good about each other. It's built on the covenant. And the covenant holds us together. And so when you don't like me, and I don't like you, you know what holds us is the covenant. And so we can fight fair. Why? Because it's not just you and me, there's a third party. And so the covenant is an important part of this, that, that you can have spiritual connections with someone, you can have social connections with someone, you can feel emotionally connected to somebody, but until you have a covenant, you're not married. And I think that's a, an important piece that we have to consider with this. Right. Lastly, sexual oneness. Sexual oneness. And the order of this matters. Right. We begin with spiritual oneness. Are we on the same page spiritually? Do we enjoy spending time together? Are we able to connect emotionally? And then at some point, I'm choosing to commit myself to you. I'm putting a ring on the table. I'm leaving all their options, and I'm choosing you. And then and only then, in a Christian view of sexuality, is sexual union a possibility. Because the covenant creates family. That's why it says here that you leave your father and your mother, you hold fast to your wife, and they become one flesh. There's a new family that is formed, and out of that family can become, can come children. And so, like, I think part of, and and sexual union is not just like, okay, like, we go to bed together. It is a sexual commitment. It is faithfulness to you and only you as the object or the place in which I'm going to bring my desires. Not what's online, not what's on Instagram, not what we watch on Netflix, right? All those things become threats to this covenant when you commit to one another. And so it's not just like, right? Like, like, like I think sometimes we think uh, Christian sexuality is kind of like, uh, like this big, but it's actually this big. Right? That it is, it is celibacy for life following Jesus, or it is wholehearted covenantal commitment for life to one person. And that's it. And we see that played out, particularly in the life of Jesus. So all those things, right? Spiritual oneness, social oneness, emotional oneness, covenantal oneness, sexual oneness. You might feel exhausted by that. I do. I don't know if maybe there was a nudge to your spouse through that, like, yeah, that's what, we need to hang out more. Yeah, we need, you need to understand me more. Right? Yeah, we need to get our finances in order. Look, this is the last point I want to make. That marriage is intended to push you to God. It's intended and designed so that you cannot do it on your own. I think one of the things that we believe, uh, one of the narratives that we believe is that marriage is intended to make me happy. And as soon as you get in, you're going to find marriage is not intended to make you happy. If you really are leaning into it. 
And that's why marriage, right, as great as it is, as beautiful as it is, as, as, as much as there's great moments that happen, you will always fail your spouse. Now, the goal is that as you follow Jesus, you fail them less, but you're never not going to fail them. And that's why marriage is designed and intended to be this thing that I have to seek Jesus in everything I do. That it's not just me and my spouse, but it's me and my spouse pursuing Jesus together. And that when I fail and when you fail in our relationship together, it's not just you and me, but it's Jesus who holds us together. This is why in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul uses marriage as this picture of what Jesus does. He says, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and take care of their body. He's talking about how husbands and wives love each other. Just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. See, what he's saying is, is like, your marriage might not be great. Like, it might not bring all the fulfillment and the happiness that you thought it would. You may realize, hopefully you realize in your relationship that you're part of the problem in that, that I'm selfish, that I want what I want. Your spouse wants what she wants or what he wants. What we need is Jesus, who will remind us and show us that, that like the gospel shows me, right, that I am not enough. I don't have enough. I'm not good enough. And that's exactly the point, is that where I struggle Christ was strong for me. Where I sin, Christ offers grace and forgiveness for me. He paid the price for my sins. And he covenants himself to me that when I turn from my sin, when I leave my sin, and when I cling to him, when I cleave to him alone, this is what Ephesians says. It says, he will wash you. He will wash your sin and your shame away. He will present you radiance. Like he will make you who you were supposed to be following him. And so marriage becomes a, a picture, a, a testing ground, a proving ground where you and I get to experience right, the grace of Jesus at work. And so if you're feeling like you're in a space where, like, man, marriage just isn't in the cards for me. Man, I really wish I could get out of this marriage. Right? Or, man, I just, it's just driving me nuts today. Marriage is intended to push us to Jesus so that as I receive the grace that he offers for me, I can then, as my heart is softened, as my life is changed, extend the same grace to my spouse so that our home might become a place of grace and forgiveness where the image of God is seen and reflected. So I want to just end this morning just with two words. I just want you to reflect on these two words, leave and cleave. Leave. Leave is I'm choosing to leave some things behind. I am forsaking these things. I'm turning these things away. I'm, I'm no longer pursuing these things. Cleaving is I'm turning over here and I'm holding on to you fast. This is what it means first and foremost to become a follower of Jesus. He says repent and believe. Repent is leave, turn away from your sin, turn away from your selfishness and all your pursuit of what you want. That's all about you. All the sin that separated you from God, turn away from it and cling to the cross of Jesus. Or he paid the price for your sins. And oftentimes where we struggle with this is that I'm not ready to leave some things. I, I want Jesus, but I also want these things. I want Jesus, but I also want my opinion on these things. I want Jesus, but I also want what I want. 
So I want to invite you this morning. What do you need to leave? Maybe it's an opinion. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something that you're looking to to find happiness and satisfaction that's not Jesus. What do you need to leave today so that you can cling wholeheartedly to Jesus who died for you, who rose for you, and he wants to present you blameless and radiant before his Father. And secondarily, what I would ask you to consider is that if you're currently married, what do you need to leave so that you can wholeheartedly cling to your spouse? There might be some things that you're hanging on to, some secret addictions that you're hanging on to, some other relationships that you're hanging on to that you just need to leave so you can more fully and faithfully cling to your spouse like Jesus calls you to. Rather than playing around with these other things here, wholeheartedly, all in, following Jesus together. What do you need to leave so you can cling to Jesus? Let me pray for us. God, it's, it's daunting to talk about marriage because there's a lot of feelings, thoughts, uh, personal struggles, opinions, all these things that are around us. God, I pray that as we consider what it means to be an image bearer of you, God, would you just first and foremost just instill in us this awe that you would even invite us into that, that you would even invite us to reflect who you are, to know who you are. And God, for the one who is here who is maybe not yet ready to leave things so that they can cling to Jesus, would you show them just the goodness and the grace of Jesus on the cross, that he died so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be made clean. And he promises himself to us. He covenants himself to us if we will turn and trust in him. God, I know in this room there's probably a lot of struggle and shame and, and, and even just like hard questions around this topic in particular. Spirit, would you do the work that you need to do in our hearts and our minds to bring clarity, uh, to bring conviction, uh, that anything that I said that, that doesn't line up with that or gets in the way of that, just throw it out and, Spirit, would you just show us Jesus? The one who's here who's struggling with their identity, who's struggling with their desire, Spirit, would you meet them? God, for the marriages that are in this room that are struggling and on the brink, God, would you meet each person in that marriage with your grace, your forgiveness, and your power to follow you and to do the things that need to be done? So that marriages can reflect your love, your character, and your covenant love for us. So God, we give ourselves to you and ask that you do what you want to do in us and through us, in our marriages, in our homes, in our community. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.